If you think of a bakery, fermentation might not immediately spring to mind. But sourdough, after all, is fermented, one of the oldest forms of fermentation right next to beer. Yogurt and cheese are fermented, coffee beans are fermented, and so is the chocolate in your pan au chocolat or the cheese in your ham and cheese croissant. And with an eye toward self-sustaining practices, one of the key benefits of fermentation is cutting down on food waste, being able to turn scraps into something delicious and give things a second, third, fourth life. This is Regenerative Baking. Welcome back! I'm your host, Dressler Parsons. I'm a pastry cook, and I'm also a pastry historian and an artist. I'm exploring what a self-sustaining bakery might look like, that is, one that only bakes what it grows. How would that actually work? And what would it mean for the crops, the menu, the scale of goods offered, the labor, the surrounding community, and how this might change as the climate warms? I'm talking to experts in any of these fields to help answer some of those questions. Today, I'm thrilled to be talking to Dr. Julia Skinner. She is an award-winning author, food historian, and cook with a PhD in information studies. She's the founder and director of Root Kitchens, where she works as a fermenter, artist, teacher, researcher, consultant for creative projects, and more. Her latest book, Our Fermented Lives, A History of How Fermented Foods Have Shaped Cultures and Communities, is well-written, thoughtful, and deeply researched, and chock-full of recipes and practical information for getting started fermenting. So let's jump into community, culture, and what abundance could look like with Dr. Julia Skinner. Do you want to start off by just saying your first and last name? Yeah. So I'm Julia Skinner. Your book is awesome. It's like a an encyclopedia, basically, about <laughs> fermentation uh, and the history of it. Um, you started off talking about your residency with Sandor Katz. Could you talk about that a little bit more and like what that was like and what connected with you about it? Sandor Alex Katz is an award-winning fermentation expert who describes himself as a fermentation revivalist. He's written a bunch of books, including Wild Fermentation, The Art of Fermentation, Fermentation as Metaphor, Sandor Katz's Fermentation Journeys from Around the World, and more. He's also given hundreds of workshops all over the U.S. and in over 20 countries, and has a five-day sliding-scale fermentation residency program in Liberty, Tennessee, that's explicitly described as friendly, communal, and queer. Yeah, so I that residency was interesting because when I applied for it, I was still working at a university. I was still like in this very different career path. Um and I applied for it and I was like, "Oh man, like this is so cool. Like I'd never get it. I'm not cool enough to get this thing." <laughs> right? And like but then I did and I was like, "Oh boy, yay." And it was well timed because then I had been wanting to leave that job for a long time, but then I finally just like did it that January. And so that year, which was good because I did not know at that time that I was going to be doing like end of life care the whole year and stuff. So it was like it was a lot of year. But that residency being in the middle was really nice because it was this like big affirmation and this very comforting sort of space. And I mean, it was also a space to just be like an openly queer person interested in ferments, which like is nice to have those spaces too. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, it's interesting because in kind of thinking about putting this podcast together, I was like, oh, I would really love to talk to Julia 
but how would fermentation relate to a bakery? And then I was like, duh. <laughs> you know, oh, wait. sourdough and butter and cheese and yogurt and all of this stuff that is so present in a bakery. So I loved, you know, everything about that. And also the uh, the Ralph Waldo Emerson quote that you pulled. It was like, God made yeast as well as dough and loves fermentation just as dearly as he loves vegetation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, which I feel like sums up the book so well, right? It's like, it's so pervasive. It's so, yeah, a part of all of our lives. This quote is from Emerson's 1844 essay, New England Reformers, from his second series of essays. The full text is linked in the show notes. What was the process like for you in figuring out how to structure this book? Because it's obviously a huge topic to wrap your arms around. Yeah, so I initially, I kind of went back and forth on a couple different ideas. And so in thinking about like telling the story of fermentation, I mean, if I were to write down every ferment and like, like I would spend my whole life, you know, doing that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I was like, okay, so we need some structure. And I had thought, one option I thought about was like an encyclopedia or like geographic grouping of things. Mm. But what I discovered is I was like, there's so much overlap in like process and product between all these different types of ferments. I mean, you know, like there's a lot of fish sauces, you know, in like Southeast Asia and like farther East Asia, but then like there's also fish sauce in ancient Rome. So like, how does that fit in? And like, so that's why I ended up ultimately um, structuring it with uh, the way that I did that's thematic so that it's, you can be like, oh, how does this relate to health? How does it relate to flavors? So then you can talk about the flavor of all those different fish sauces and how they were used in all these cuisines without being like, wait, this one doesn't fit, but it exists. And, Ah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, that, you know, it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I also I appreciated how holistic your categories were, like how in the health section, you end up talking about how fermentation is like, also a really solid meditative practice and like, and also as a craft and the act of kind of doing something every day and, and checking on it. I'm assuming that's how you found it to be in your own life. Yeah, and it's been interesting. I imagine you've probably found this too, working, you know, working with food with your hands, that, the, you know, that's very much a thing. And like, what I've found interesting is like, the way that relationship has evolved over time. So it's, yes, it's meditative. Yes, it promotes mindfulness and all of these things. But as I've been, so this year, one of my big, like, themes in my own personal development has been doing a lot of like body-based somatic work mm. and like finding the ways of like working with your hands at like the way that like physically that feels grounding and kind of being more aware of of that part of it um yeah has given me like even more appreciation for it yeah no it is for sure like I mean, that's one of the reasons that I work in food is that it is very meditative <laughs> to just make things with your hands. I also, I thought it was interesting, the idea that um, historically people with more shelf-stable food were kind of in like 
a more food secure spot, but then also the nuances with that, because there's lots of evidence of food being shared throughout communities. And I was wondering if you would talk a little bit more about that and like kind of the research that came up around these different ways of organizing food within a community. Yeah. So there's, you know, there's maybe the, an example I often point to is like, kind of a good example of this is the kimchi making parties um kim you know the kimchong parties in um korea where people come together and they make kimchi and so everybody kind of has their own kimchi but oftentimes people will also make extra for other community members that maybe you know can't afford the ingredients or housebound or you know whatever um other community members that might be in need and so you know, that's an example of it building community with everybody making these ferments, but then building community by actually keeping the community like fed and alive later. Right. Um, but there's a lot of examples of, you know, people, you know, either storing and hoarding their own food, you know, or sharing their, you know, sharing what they have. And for me, I include with that, you know, part of the research that went into it, was kind of noticing the gaps in our knowledge. So fermentation is so ubiquitous, right? That it's something we don't often think about recording. It's like, oh, like everybody's grandma makes sauerkraut. Everybody makes, you know, beer. Everybody makes whatever. Why do we need to write it down? We all make it. But then those traditions change or go away. Or, you know, in the case of a lot of communities in like areas that were colonized, like, those traditions were lost or suppressed. So like, there's a lot of stories we don't have now. And so when I think about community and food preservation and food security, it comes down to not just the actual physical food we have, but the actual knowledge, like sharing, you know, sharing information, you know, with your neighbors, as well as sharing the food, um, recording the information, all of that. Yeah. No, absolutely. Like, especially when you were talking about how food preservation became very important during the last period of climate change, like the little ice age. I mean, it feels like this sort of exploration is really important as we go into another change in climate. <laughs> yes. um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's part of why and I'm not sure if this, you know, if like consciously I realized this when I started teaching fermentation and writing about fermentation and now writing about food preservation generally. Like, yeah, I don't know if it came to my mind that like we have to prepare our community because like, you know, shit might go kind of sideways here at some point. But like, and, ho you know, like hopefully we're able to kind of write some of that sideways going. To the extent we can but yeah i mean also it's skills that are important that like a lot of us don't have anymore like most of my neighbors like when like my neighbors you know kids get sick and stuff like i'm the neighbor they contact that they're like do you have any more of that elderberry syrup like do you my kids really like those pickles do you have any more pickles and like and and yeah it's which like which i'm really happy about like to be like the neighborhood witch in her little cottage that gives everybody their pickles and elderberry syrup. But like also their skills, I would really love, you know, all of us to have uh, too, especially since we're so used to living non seasonally and we are going to be asked to live more seasonally um, again already are, but 
more so. Yeah. <laughs> no, I love that you're living my dream of being the the neighborhood witch. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a good dream. I'm I'm really into having actualized that <laughs> in my world. <laughs> Yeah, I also I really appreciated uh, at the end of the book, you kind of like you're going through all of the tools that you'll need. And they're all like, so just basic things that anyone can find. Um, And, you know, I mean, I think, you know, making that knowledge and craft accessible is so huge. It makes me think of a printmaking teacher that I had when I was in art school. And he would like teach us the school way to do printmaking. And then he'd be like, also, you can do this if you just leave it out in the sun for five minutes and you can wash it out with a garden hose. Like, you know, it's like you can do it with these tools and you can also do it very cheaply another way. Quick printmaking aside, since I brought this up, this is specifically about screen printing. If you squeegee emulsion, a confusing name, but that's just what it's called. It's called emulsion onto your screen and expose it to light, it hardens. You can make a stencil in the screen by printing out an all-black version of your design on a transparent piece of paper and placing it on top of the emulsion-covered screen. So when you expose it to light, the dark parts of your design block the light. The emulsion glue hardens everywhere else, and you remove the paper and rinse out the screen to leave behind your stencil. Screen printing studios use specific equipment for this, like a light table and so on and so forth, but you can also do it with the sun and a garden hose. Would you want to talk briefly about the kinds yeah. of things to ferment? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I, so I'm going to preface this by saying that like whatever tools you like using and you want to use like are the tools you should use, right? Like some people really like to use... Like, they really want to homebrew beer using, you know, really specific kits, and they want to really kind of control the outcome, and and that's great. And, like, do that if you want to do that. Um, or you can, like, boil wort and put it, like, put it in a container and stir it and check it and, like, you know, like, add, you know, add something that has wild yeast on it and kind of just see what happens. Like, you have options. Um, you know, for me, I try to teach at at the level of the most accessible i mean for the reason you described is like the more people that have access to this the better and yes there are benefits to using certain specialized tools but also think you know magic can happen without it so you know kind of the the big thing i tell people is like you you know a jar some salt and some thyme and like that's basically what you need like you know, if I have a cabbage, I massage some salt, you know, I shred it up, massage salt in it, pack it in my jar, and let it sit, like, I probably will get sauerkraut out of that, unless, you know, I don't know, something goes real wild with it, but, like, um, you know, if I, like, don't have any brine in there or something, then, you know, maybe it won't turn into sauerkraut, but it really, 95, you know, 99.5% of the time, it, it will be delicious and wonderful. Julia has a whole appendix of tools listed, and they're all things you can find in a normal kitchen or a thrift store. This includes crocks, containers basically, weights, anything heavy, from a bowl to a plate to a bag of beans to a boiled river rock, literally, tea towels or cut-up sheets with twine or a rubber band to secure them, a permanent marker and masking tape for labeling, 
jars, funnels, mixing bowls, measuring spoons, a strainer, cheesecloth, and a salt cellar for easy salt access. Yeah, I mean, it's really that simple. And, you know, same with many other things. I mean, you know, tempeh making and koji making and stuff, you can buy specialized chambers. Um, I turn the oven light on in my oven and put them in there and let it incubate that way. That's the same way I incubate my yogurt. Um, like, um, you know, you can like, you can make yogurt in an instant pot and like all of that. And like, great, fine. Do that if you want to, but like, it really can be, it can, it's very adaptable. I mean, the thing I always remind people of is we've been making all of these foods since well before, you know, people had, you know, bricks meters and, you know, specialized stainless steel tubs and, you know, whatever, 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 like. Bricks meters are like little handheld microscopes that specifically measure the amount of sucrose in a liquid. I've used them for sorbets because you want the sugar content to be high enough that the sorbet has a nice kind of creamy texture and isn't just fruit ice. And yeah, we like we've been making this stuff for thousands of years without all of that. So like you can probably make it with whatever you have around. Yeah, that kind of thing is uh, what I love about pastry, too, when there's like there's a specific temperature that you need for Swiss meringue, but you can also do it by just sticking your finger in the bowl. And then if it's like a little too hot for comfort, then, you know, it's ready. Or, you know, if you're like heating something up to softball temperature and you just drop it in a mm. glass of ice, and it is a soft ball, then, like, you're ready, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which I think, like, you bringing that up makes me think about the in the way that we we tend to look at recipes and cooking now versus in the past, where, like, this intuitive kind of learning by feeling and doing is, like, how we've, like, how we've cooked for so long, right? And, like... Now, you know, and I mean, there's like a whole interesting history, which I'm sure you already know of like Mrs. Beaton and, you know, all the, um, you know, all of kind of the changes to recipe formatting. Mark Rumminger has a meticulously researched article about this on his blog, Slices of Blue Sky, linked in the show notes. But the short version is that recipes were once written as narratives, like one big paragraph of explaining how to cook something. The ingredients weren't separated out, it was all mixed in as part of the cooking directions. But in Isabella Beaton's 1866 book, The Book of Household Management, she wrote recipes in a style similar to recipes today. The title, followed by a short story about the recipe and tips for cooking it, then a list of ingredients, and finally, the cooking directions. If you're interested in this topic, the Mark Rumminger article has tons of references linked for further reading, including an episode of Gastropod about cookbooks over the years and how they continue to evolve today. But now these this reliance on, like, it has to, you know, I have to, like, take this exact temperature, I need these, like, really exact steps, and it's like, like, man, the way I learned to make bread was, like, if the water's wrist temperature, then the water's, like, what you want to use, right? Like... I don't think I've ever actually taken the temperature for water for my bread. <laughs> and like, um, Yeah, so like you talking about that kind of makes me think of like that too and kind of like how cool it is that we're like, people are starting to kind of move back in that direction a little bit. Yeah, I think there's a thing with bread too where like it's alive and <laughs> so like kind of uh, just intuitively if you're like, well, like, is this a comfortable temperature for me? Like, it yeah. is probably a comfort or, you know, like, 
if it's too cold, then I'm huddled on my bed in a blanket. But if it's like a yeah. reasonable temperature, then. Yeah, I'm out doing stuff. Yeah. It's wild, too, that I didn't know commercial yeast is only 150 years old. Like, that's very new. Yeah, I didn't know that either until I started researching this book. Commercial yeast, like the granulated kind you buy in packets at the store, was first produced in Europe in 1871 and then made its way to the United States in 1876, debuting at Philadelphia's Centennial Exposition. But these early versions were sold in blocks, not granules, and they only lasted for a few days at a time. Dry yeast packets were sold in the 1940s, and an even faster rising yeast came on the market in the 80s. I like. I figured it was relatively new-ish, but I did. Yeah, I didn't realize. Yeah, it was quite you know quite so recent. Um, yeah, I mean, people were buying. You know, I mean, not commercial yeast like the granulated stuff we have today, but like a starter maintained by a bakery, or you know, getting like the foam that was scraped off beer and like using that or you know whatever but yeah it's so it's so interesting because i think we take for granted like oh we just always have this yeast and i'm like no like you actually had to maintain it or like get some of somebody else's starter or something for like most of history but like theoretically does that mean that most pastries were once made with sourdough i mean think so right i mean they'd have to be (laughs) i mean unless you had you know i mean there's like you know chemical leavening agents too but the commercial versions of those are also you know relatively recent yeah and i don't know as much about um you know chemical leavening i know that you know there's various ways people have done it through history but i don't really know what those are Yeah, I know. That's something that I want to look into more of like, because I know cream of tartar you can get from inside wine casks. And so Mm -hmm. like that, you know, is very old. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But then as far as like baking soda goes, I don't actually know how you would go about. Yeah, I, I don't know either. I mean, like the extent of my knowledge is, you know, the box of Arm and Hammer that like is in my cabinet i don't know where else you would find if you would find that anywhere else i don't know mystery mystery (laughs) i know now we both have a thing to research yeah (laughs) i was interested also how well how do you pronounce it is it sowens scones or sowens or um yeah i mean i always say sowens i think it can be said you know, several different ways. Um, yeah, Sowens is usually what I say. I don't know if that's like technically right. <laughs> Sowens is a traditional Scottish porridge made by soaking and fermenting oat kernels after they have been removed from the grains by threshing. Traditionally, they were fermented in what looks like a small wooden barrel, and they would sit for a week or so until a thick, sour paste formed. That sour paste, Sowens, can be eaten as a porridge or a drink or used when baking scones. Have you made scones with it? Mm-hmm. What do they taste like? Yeah. They're really good. I mean, they basically taste, you know, like kind of your standard oat scone. But since you're you're using like this oat paste instead, like, you know, the, you don't have like whole oats in there. So the textures may be a little different. Um but it's also a little more sour, so it kind of, 
I don't know. Like it tastes like kind of like a sourdoughy scone sort of thing. Really good. Like I'm, I like them. <laughs> I mean, it sounded it sounded cool. It also there were a couple of things that I thought were interesting about oats, and one was uh, you mentioned they were first considered a weed in like wheat and barley fields and then eventually like came into their own as a crop and is that a thing that happens a lot where it's like oh this plant is just like not a useful plant and then it is the most useful plant (laughs) and then becomes very useful yeah i mean you know the the more familiarity we get with the plants in our environment the more we're like wait a minute this seems very much like you know this thing or that thing and then sometimes it goes totally the other direction i mean like here in the south the most infamous example being kudzu where it was brought in where they were like oh wow look you can like you can do all this stuff with the root and you can eat the young leaves and you can make baskets out of the vines and like great well like we can make we have enough like basket material to last us for the rest of our lives now (laughs) and beyond like thanks guys like (laughs) the entire for anybody who's listening who's not in the south it basically everything's covered in kudzu now like it's all kudzu like my backyard i have to spend probably two to three hours a week cutting back kudzu with a machete like it's insane and i live in the middle of the city like, I don't, like, um yeah but so but yeah i mean i think that and kind of going back to the climate conversation having more awareness of like the plants that adapt well right to where we live um and that are thriving and like how we might interact with those plants in sustainable ways that also feed us um, feels important, important to know. Yeah. And that also feels like, you know, information that you have to get just over time and like through experience with living in an area and by talking to people who have lived in the area for a really long time. And then also, like, as the climate changes, the things that will thrive in an area will also change. So it's like a moving target. (laughs) Yeah. It is such a moving target, in fact, that the USDA recently updated their plant hardiness zone map for the first time in over a decade. This is the map that tells you, basically, what plants grow best in your region based on typical minimum and maximum outside temperatures. In the most recent update, about half the country has shifted into a warmer zone. Yeah, I mean, I you know, it's something that's interesting kind of talking with other foragers about, like, the differences we see in when things are showing up. And, like, there's a good piece of advice that Mallory O'Donnell offers, which is to watch, like, once you've identified a plant and you know where that plant kind of is actually go and visit it and watch it through all four seasons and really see like watch how it looks in all of those seasons so you're able to identify it you know so that I can like you know I don't know like look at a pecan tree when it's winter and be like that's a pecan tree right (laughs) you know even if it doesn't have you know pecans on it in like I don't know February or whatever. Mallory O'Donnell runs the blog How to Cook a Weed and describes herself as a professional amateur and enthusiast of gardening, cooking, and foraging. She teaches classes, and her Instagram is linked in the show notes. And just the the difference in when things are coming up, like in my own yard, I've so I've owned this house for 
about eight years now, eight or nine years. And chickweed, I used to get chickweed like every April, April and every like September, October. And the chickweed that was normally the like, it's starting to cool down kind of fall chickweed is just coming in now, like as of last week. Oh, wow. Um, and so I've seen like, just in my own microclimate, you know, a change, which is, you know, there, there's many soapboxes I can get on about how Atlanta's treating the environment right now and in general, but especially right now. Um, but I won't just to say that I think that because of that, you're seeing really dramatic changes in this place in particular because our ecosystem is being ravaged so quickly. Like it might, the rate of change might look a little different if I was somewhere else. Mm, Yeah, no, that makes sense. This is a different topic, but could you talk more about uh, Sarah Dwen, the goddess of fermentation and magic? (laughs) Yes, yes, who I have off screen here. I actually have an altar to right over there in my in my little uh, writing den studio. Uh-oh. Incredible. Apparently it might be pronounced Caradwen, though I'm not sure I'm saying that right either. But the famous poem about her is in the Book of Taliesin, a book of poems from the early 1300s and one of the most famous Welsh manuscripts. An English translation from 1915 is linked in the show notes. Yeah, so she's... She's very cool because, like, with her and with a lot of fermentation gods, there's this kind of shared emphasis on transformation and on wisdom and on kind of the consumption of something as a transformative act. Like, you are, you have this food that is being transformed that then transforms you through the consumption of it, and it's like... It feels very apt for talking about fermentation and thinking about fermentation and like how it actually functions um, for us, but like is also just really cool. <laughs> you know, like because I'll have you know I'll be thinking about that, and I'm like, this isn't a new thought. Like when I'm thinking about this, I'm tapping into these you know very ancient traditions, and so this particular goddess is a Welsh goddess. Um, I can't remember the name of the lake that she is supposed to have lived by. The lake she lived by is called Bala Lake in North Wales. According to Welsh legend, Caradwen's husband ruled over a court that was entirely drowned in one night and now sits at the bottom of the lake. These days, there are two sailing clubs there. You can also rent a kayak, if that's more your speed. But um, it's supposed to be a very powerful, cool place to go. So she had this cauldron, and she was making this magical brew that she was going to give to her child to make them very wise. And then the person that was stirring the brew ended up, you know, taking some of it and getting that knowledge themselves. And so there's this kind of epic chase story of... You know, she's transforming into, you know, I don't remember, you know, like they're both transforming into things and chasing each other around or she's chasing uh, this kid around. And eventually he transforms into, I think it's a oat or no, it's a grain of barley. And then she transforms into a chicken, eats the grain of barley. But then that makes it so that she's pregnant with what this kiddo becomes, which is Taliesin, which is like the famous Welsh bard, who actually wrote in another part of the book, I have um, the transcript of one of his poems that was about a a plague that ran through Wales, but it talks about like these unseen 
small forces in a way that like kind of you know it, like it feels very similar to how we think about microbes today in a way that i think we don't give our ancestors credit for like their level of understanding of that um yeah yeah so that's kind of a, a condensed version of of her her and him no that's <laughs> awesome i love like old stories like that you know mythology is fantastic obviously <laughs> super cool <laughs> um when you mentioned attitudes about microbes it reminded me um you have like kind of a just a little line that is talking about like you know people don't generally get food poisoning from fermented foods but like it can sometimes happen with cheese and meats uh hence mm-hmm. the necessity to be microbe aware but not microbe afraid and yes <laughs> is that an arthur reference because <laughs> there's a line in uh <laughs> Arthur, like the PBS kids show uh-huh. that I think about all of the time because it's like, uh, I think brain is like explaining to a kid. that's like, you see, beware doesn't mean be afraid. It means be aware. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, so it wasn't intentionally an Arthur reference, but I did watch a lot of Arthur when I was younger, and so I wonder if it kind of, like, wormed its way into my brain, and then, like, this is how it emerged. <laughs> like, like, that that feels very possible. It fermented. <laughs> it fermented in there for a few decades, and then came back out. Yeah. <laughs> it came out transformed. Um, it came out transformed. Uh also, speaking of transformation by fermentation, you pointed out that you can preserve things in alcohol and then you can also ferment things to make alcohol, which then theoretically you could use to preserve. And there's something yeah. about that closed loop that just like completely blew my mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's like when because I talk a lot about food waste, like both here and generally and that's like one of the things i really like in thinking about like the possibilities of closed loop or more closed loops at least in our own kitchens is yeah like i can take some fruit like peaches or something and i can ferment them into alcohol but then i can like if i have other peaches i can then steep them in that alcohol and preserve them or i can make peach vinegar and then i can with that alcohol and then i can use that vinegar to pickle the peaches and then, you know, like, on and on and on, like, it can just go in so many directions. It's very cool to, like, look at all of the ways the different ferments kind of interact with each other and, like, the ways you can adapt things. Like, if you want to make pickles, you let's say you want to make, like, full sours, but you don't, you know, I don't know. It's summertime, they keep getting mushy. You know, you can mimic the acidity by making quick pickles with vinegar, like, there's so many different ways to to play around with it. It's just it's very cool. It makes uh it makes a kitchen seem incredibly abundant when there's just so much that you can make from one yeah. type of food. <laughs> I have an online class that I teach called Preserving Abundance and that's like you've hit the nail on the head for like why I named it that. You can look at like a bunch of carrots or something and be like, "Whoa, there's like 20 different things I could be doing with these right now." <laughs> with the greens and the carrots and the peels and the, you know, whatever. It, it I I have so much appreciation now for just like the possibilities of our kitchens rather than like the limitations of them. Is there are there any ferments that you like 
haven't tried yet but that have really been on your mind that you're like ooh, i really want to see how that would go i let's see i so i've made natto with other people um but i have not yet just made natto in my own kitchen um so i would like to do that at some point um Right now, I'm just buying my natto from uh, New York Natto, who make a really good one with black beans that I highly recommend, mm. um, especially for people new to natto who maybe like are trying to kind of grow towards uh, enjoying it. Natto is a traditional Japanese food made of fermented soybeans. Usually, it's eaten for breakfast over rice, but people play around with it. Meat fermentation, I haven't done a lot of, um, and like kind of more higher level like cheese making. Like I've made, you know, fresh cheeses and like stuff like that, but I haven't made like a brie or you know something that like requires kind of specialty cultures and like aging. But I would like to, um, and in fact, and in some ways contractually obligated to explore these things somewhat more, as my next book has a meat and a dairy section, and so there's you know there's some stuff that I'm probably because I'm trying to keep it very accessible for home cooks that I'm not, you know, I'm not going to go into like really advanced whatever, but like, you know, basic sausage making, really basic charcuterie, you know, stuff like that, which I've been wanting to do anyways. Um, And I think particularly in this moment as I'm trying to eat more like local meat and really use everything that I have um, will be a timely lesson as well. That's uh, very exciting about your next book. (laughs) (laughs) I'm excited about it. Yeah. What is it going to be about? So it's um, basically a big preserving handbook that covers, you know, fruits, vegetables, meat, dairy, like kind of just like you have a bunch of food. How do you preserve it? And the way, you know, we're kind of finalizing what exactly the structure of it is going to be, you know, Um, as far as how things kind of connect to other recipes. But what I ultimately want is for it to be something where people can kind of like decision tree out what they might do with a specific thing and give them like multiple options for it. So they can be like, oh, I only have five minutes, but I can throw this handful of herbs in this vinegar and that'll preserve them and flavor the vinegar. Mm. Or like, oh, I've got all this time. I can like, you know, I don't know, do something else with these herbs. I can you know, hang them up and dry them and then crumble them, or I can, you know, put them, you know, ferment them, or I can do whatever else, um, make them into a paste. Um, Yeah, so, like, kind of giving people options, um, and then trying, I'm, unlike a lot of food preserving handbooks that tend to go, like, really big batch, so they're like, you've got 20 gallons of tomatoes, right? I'm like, well, not everybody has 20 gallons of tomatoes. <laughs> like, so, so, like, I'm trying to make it, like, hey, you've got 10 tomatoes. Here's what to do with your 10 tomatoes. And then, like, if you have 20 gallons, you can just kind of size up. Like, you can, rather than making somebody try to, like, split a recipe, you know, a bunch of times. Like, it's so much easier to just, like, expand the recipe. Um, yeah, so I'm very excited about it. Um, I'm handing in the final manuscript in October of next year. So I'm, I've been testing things all this year, but um, on into the future. That's so exciting. And it is, you know, I mean, 
I'm sure it's nice to have a hard and fast excuse to try these things that you've been wanting to get more into anyway. Yeah, it's you know, things that I'm like curious about. I was testing a carrot cake jam recipe, Ooh. which I'm very excited about. Um, it's jam that tastes like carrot cake. It's kind of my new favorite thing. I'm excited about um, that. <laughs> <laughs> I... Like I need to make more because like my fam I've had like a couple of family members that are like, Hey, I want a jar of that for Christmas and I'm like, I ate all this already, <laughs> so <laughs> to make you more. Totally valid. Um Yeah, it was really good. Um but yeah, that one, you know, I was like, Oh, like translating the flavor of carrot cake into jam in a way that where like the spices feel balanced and everything comes through. I was like, Oh, this is gonna take me like a bunch of tries and like and I mean, and this doesn't always happen. It's not like every recipe I make, I'm like, it's perfect on the first try. But in this case, it happened to be like exactly what I wanted on the first try. So I was like, oh, great. Okay, well, we've got, got fine. <laughs> like, we've got carrot cake jam now. <laughs> like, um, or like making, I've been making root vegetable like jams in general. And I kind of thought that like the boiling process and like making it process was going to take a lot longer. And it's actually been pretty straightforward and easy. So yeah, it's been nice. That's awesome. Yeah. God, that sounds so good. <laughs> In thinking about like what a theoretically what a bakery might look like where you're only baking what you grow and like what, how that would function. It kind of makes sense that it would be that there would be an element of it. That's like preserved produce and like kind of jam heavy or like using things that have been, pickled and mm-hmm. where the abundance has been preserved you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> and so the idea of a carrot cake jam is like wow that just like fits right in there <laughs> super easy yeah or like you know i mean things that i think we think of as like being in like cans at the grocery store now but historically we're like canned by people in their houses like cherry pie filling and apple pie filling and like you know all these things that it's like oh like we used to just like make we used to just make those. Like, <laughs> like, um, it is something I've been getting back into. Um, I made, I, so I just finished testing my um, apple pie filling recipe a few weeks ago. And yeah, it's like, I never really make apple pie because it's just like me. Like I'm just here at the house by myself. Like I don't need a whole pie. <laughs> but I was like, well, I need to like make a pie to see if this filling like tastes okay like once it's baked and so yeah but it was nice because now I have like enough filling for like a bunch of other pies I'm like okay well if anybody invites me to like a holiday thing like I'm set I just have to like dump this in a pie crust and then like you know giving a gift to future me yeah that but yeah I also ate pie for breakfast every day for a week which was really nice that does sound really nice (laughs) yeah (laughs) it was very good (laughs) Wait, so how does that work? Is it like uh, it's just preserved with sugar and then it's shelf stable or? So basically when you make um, apple pie filling or what you know, whatever pie filling, you're basically cooking down the fruit um, in like a thick sugar syrup, um, you know, that you flavor however you want. And then you want the sugar to be relatively high and you want it. I also add a little bit of acid to it, you know, citrus juice or, you know, in this case, I think I used apple cider vinegar 
and the sugar and the apple cider vinegar then make it so when you hot water bath can it, act, like it actually stays shelf stable. You don't have, uh, you know, botulism and other things you do not want uh, growing in there. But it's basically cook it down into a thick syrup and then hot water bath can it for, you know, however, however long. I can't remember from the recipe how long I did um, for quarts. I want to say like 25 minutes, something like that. Um, but yeah, it's pretty easy. Yeah. It's like it's all it's all pretty easy. Like I haven't done pressure canning yet, which is also I have a pressure canner now, but I haven't I haven't busted it out yet. That'll be uh probably in the next couple weeks. So I feel that. It also does make sense, like you know, I mean pies have been such an old form of food and an old form of dessert and like of course Mm -hmm. you know if people were making them pre-refrigeration like they wouldn't just be making them with fresh fruit they would also probably be preserving the fruit reconstituted fruit and all kinds of stuff yeah yeah well and then there's like and i'm sure you know you're already well aware of this of like the history of pies like as a preservation technique I linked a really interesting academic article about this by Amanda E. Herbert and Michael Walkden in the show notes. But here's a quick excerpt to explain pies as preservation. Since its inception in Britain around 1300, pie crust had functioned as a sort of ongoing culinary experiment, a tool used by bakers and household cooks to make perishable sources of protein last longer. Pre-modern pies, baked with thick crusts and firm crimping, created hot, airtight environments which helped to ensure that their contents would not be exposed to bacteria and therefore would not rot or become inedible. Yeah, which is like, the first time I heard about that, I was just like, whoa, (laughs) like, how cool. (laughs) Like, it makes so much sense, but like, yeah, I never would have thought of it. I was wondering, towards the end, you kind of talk about um how a possibility for the future is kind of a return to more like localized communities and i don't know i was just kind of wondering like how how does fermentation like intersect with kind of your dreams for the future of food and community and societal organization i guess (laughs) (laughs) i mean I so like my personal dream is at some point what I want to do is have um is I'm I'm like setting my life up for living part time here and part time in Ireland um nice. and so which I'm super excited about um but I what I think would be ideal is to have like I want to have kind of like rural kind of skill sharing educational spaces in both. Um, and I think, you know, and there's already a lot of people in both countries doing this, right? And so it's as much tapping in, into that rather than being like, I'm, you know, making something entirely new. It's more like I'm offering another place where this is happening, right? Um, but I think when we, you know, when we think about how fermentation can support our communities, I think that educational and kind of local regional component is going to be really important of like having a place you can go to learn these skills and having, you know, having networks of like local farmers that you work with and kind of just plugging back into that, like into the networks that we have relied on for most of history. And now, you know, I can go to the publics and I can get, you know, avocados any time of year. And like the person who grew grew them is at best hundreds of miles away. Like, um, 
you know, which like I'm very happy to have avocados. Like I'm very into them, but also I recognize that like it is such a shift from like what things have been historically, and it's like not a sustainable shift. I mean, as is becoming increasingly evident, and like. I think people kind of get in this like all or nothing, like I have to give up my avocados forever because the world is burning. And I'm like, you can also just really plug into your local community and like have your avocados once in a while, but like kind of mostly be in this community space. And like, that's a great place to start. I loved too, um, when you're talking about like kind of the act of fermentation or like eating something fermented, how there's like this triple community thing going on where there's the micro community of the microbes. And then there's the macro community of like your ancestors who have been mm-hmm. fermenting for, you know, millennia. And then there's like your current present day community of the people that you're making the ferments with or sharing them with, or, you know, the farmers that you got the, food from and so on and so Mm -hmm. forth and so it's like just part of this huge network that reaches through time and space (laughs) yeah yeah no it's i like something that fermentation has really taught me is yeah that like these traditions you know these very long wonderful traditions i'm at a point where like all of my ancestors you know have been you know in one way or another were making and were consuming these things right um but many of them were making them. And then I'm kind of at the point where I'm like, oh, like it's up to me to decide like what traditions are being carried forward or not, how these traditions are nourishing the community, like what needs to shift or not based on the community I'm currently in and how that alters those traditions. Yeah, you know, like we don't, like I had ancestors that I'm sure made so-ins because like they were Scottish people who lived in rural areas, right? Um, So I'm sure like, we're familiar with it especially because they were all like from Aberdeenshire but like you know I mean now we're we don't have the same milling techniques and so like getting the oat starch off of oat holes isn't really like so much of a concern to us today so like you know how does that change that you know that tradition like what do you make it with now what do you know how does how does the you know is that a food that people care to continue or not like yeah yeah, or is it a food that'll be relevant again, you know, in yeah. 30 years or something? Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Well, <laughs> it has been just so lovely to have you yes. here. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's so good to catch up. It's been far too long. Yeah. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for for agreeing yeah. to do this podcast. <laughs> of course. Well, thank you for inviting me on. Yeah, it's my pleasure. <laughs> awesome. Yay. So in thinking about an imaginary sustainable bakery, it does make sense that fermentation would play a big role, with sourdough, cheese, yogurt, obviously, but also with fruit preservation like jams and pie fillings. But really, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Fermentation could play a crucial part in helping this bakery turn potential food waste into yet more ingredients for baking, like with sew-ins, for example. And I also can't help but think about the macro and micro communities present in baking, just like those present in fermentation. The microbes in the yeast, the community you share the bread with, and the ancestors before you who've baked loaves of bread for millennia. 
Thank you for listening, and if you like what you heard and you want to support me and support this project, I would love for you to go rate this show and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Those reviews make a big deal in shows finding new listeners. Also, if you have someone in your life you think would be interested in a podcast about building a sustainable bakery as the climate changes, please share this with them. You can follow me on Instagram at Regenerative Baking or Dressler Parsons, and show notes are up at dresslerparsons.com slash regenerativebaking. Also, the intro and outro music were made by me. Have a lovely two weeks, and until next time, the future could be sweet. <laughs>